Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I'm Dr. Sam Foster, co-organiser for the Bassi Study Group for Minority History. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organised by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Centre for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. On today's episode, Dr. Roland Clark at the University of Liverpool talks to Dr. Raoul Castorja at the University of Leicester on anti-Semitism and the rise of fascism in interwar Romania. Thanks very much, Sam. So, Raoul, welcome to the podcast. Can Thank you, you, Roland. Perhaps if you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in fascism and anti-Semitism in Romania. Well, um, I'm, a, I'm currently an honorary research fellow in modern European history at the University of, of Leicester. And I've been working on this for quite a long time. And I guess if you want to pinpoint the, 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 the time when my interest in the topic started, it was during my years as an undergrad, a long, long time ago indeed, um, when I came across Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem and her claim in that book that Romania was the most anti-Semitic country in pre-war Europe. And I suddenly went like, wow, you know, I've, I've, as a Romanian, I've never heard about this. I just graduated high school in Romania without hearing a word about anti-Semitism in Romania. And here I am reading, uh, you know, a, a text from the 1960s, which identifies Romania as the most anti-Semitic country in, in Europe. So I wanted to know more about this. And I've started looking first uh, during my undergrad years into the history of the Holocaust in Romania and then kept moving my way backward to understand the interwar period and then the period before the First World War and so on. Uh, and you've got a book coming out hopefully next year called Enemies of the Re- Resurrection, Anti-Semitism and Fascism in the Ideology of the Legionary Movement in Interwar Romania. Uh, and from what I understand, that book looks at Romanian fascism and especially at the ways that widespread hatred of Jews turned into fascism after the First World War. But anti-Semitism was around in Romania a long time before the 20th century. Can you tell us a bit about how anti-Semitism evolves there during the long 19th century? Because anti-Semitism has a history too, right? Did it change over time? Thank you for that question, Roland. Um, this relates partly to what I was saying earlier, that in order to understand what, what happened in Romania during the Second World War, I had to keep going back and try to understand the roots of anti-Semitism in the country. And you can safely say that anti-Semitism was around since the establishment of the modern Romanian state in the mid-19th century. Um, and this relates also to a particular demographic situation of Romania in the 19th century, or the old kingdom of Romania, it comes to, it comes to be known after 1918, was a country that was remarkably ethnically homogeneous for the region of uh, Eastern Europe before World War One. 
not that the identification by ethnicity meant much to an overwhelmingly peasant population, but in the 1899 census, uh, they, they counted 92% Romanians, and Jews were, in 1899, numerically most significant minority and different also in terms of religion um, from the majority population. And here, anti-Semitism also drew on, uh, on this legacy of religiously inspired anti-Judaism that you can encounter in other parts of, of Europe as well. But I think the specific conditions of the 19th century also um, can, I mean, can also account for the rise of anti-Semitism in Romania. Um, at the beginning of the 19th century, so in 1829, although figures are relatively unreliable at this time, you don't have official censuses, um, but in 1829, there were approximately 10,000 Jews in, in Wallachia, the southern part of, of uh, what will become later Romania, and 12,000 in Moldova. Um, there's then a mass migration from the Pale of Settlement following the Treaty of Adrianople, which leads to an increase that sees uh, the, the, the number become approximately 135,000 Jews in the two principalities by 1859. So here you have a sevenfold increase in the 30 years period. And this mass migration is read by, um, by, the, by the Romanian state building elites as a potential threat. Um, so you have, on the one hand, a group that's clearly different from the majority population, by language also, in the case of the recent migrants who don't speak Romanian, many of the Jews who had been in Romania for a long time uh, were acculturated to Romanian language and spoke Romanian, but the recent migrants obviously did not. They're different by religion, they're also predominantly urban, and this is important because Romania is a predominantly rural country, so they stand out also in terms of, of um, this kind of pattern. And it's also a group that's eminently international or transnational. Their mistreatment prompts international outrage and foreign intervention on the behalf of the Jews in, in, um, in Romania. So, for example, in 1867, you have a case of four Jews drowning at Galatz, and you have um, uh, significant interventions from transnational Jewish organizations like the Alliance Israelite Universelle, as well as protests from um, the, the, the great powers at which Romania was based on, on which basically Romania was relying at this time for, for protection and for the pursuit of its um, independence. And throughout the 19th century, the, the so-called Jewish question in Romania is very much linked to these uh, international interventions on behalf of the Jews. 1866, if you will, is a very important year because that's the year of the first Romanian constitution. And in the first Romanian constitution, um, Article 7 specifies, I quote, that only foreigners of Christian rights may become Romanians. So non-Christians are excluded from citizenship, and this is this will become one of the most important things defining um, the Jews' position in Romanian society during the 19th century. So. Fast forward to 1878, and Romania is pursuing independence, and at the Congress of Berlin, its independence is conditioned on accepting equal civil and political rights, irrespective of religion, so going against the existing article in its constitution. And this is once again read as foreign intervention in uh, you know, the internal affairs of what would be a sovereign state. So this is how the Jewish question in the 19th century comes to sort of like position itself at the intersection of the perhaps the two most important other questions in 19th century Romania, the national question, the question of the pursuit of independence and sovereignty on the one hand, and the social question which had to do with the emancipation of the peasantry. 
On, with regards to national question, this had to do with this resentment at international interventions on behalf of the Jews in Romania. With regards to the social question, um, anti-Semitism becomes, to some extent, a displacement for Romanian anxieties about uh, the perceived absence of a native middle class. Um, of course, at this time, like, like everywhere else, the middle class is seen as sort of being the, the, the driving force behind nation building. And the absence of a middle class is very much noted by Romanian state makers and very much um, so seen as, as a problem, as a problem to be solved. And there, this translates into anxieties about Jews becoming a surrogate bourgeoisie, as a, as a colleague of mine, Andrei Soresko, put it in, in one of his publications. Um, because of their being urban, because of their being involved in, um, to a significant extent, in trade, they are seen as a, a replacement of the native middle class, and this is obviously translated into a problem. And if you look at these elements, if you look at the, the, the so-called national question and the pursuit of independence, on the other hand, the, the social question having to do with, with the economic situation and, um, and the situation of the, the dire situation of the peasantry, you basically have uh, the, the basis of what would later become the, the, the interwar Romanian antisemitism. If you, you know, in, in his 1936 programmatic memoir for my legionaries, the, the leader of the fascist movement in interwar Romania um, claims that there were three major issues that, that Romanians had to solve. Uh, one, the unity of all Romanians. Two, the emancipation of the peasantry through land distribution and political rights. And three, the resolution of the Jewish problem. Now, Later on, after the First World War, the, the first two can be said we have been solved. Um, the third one remains the issue, the, the solution of the Jewish problem is the issue that in the view of Romanian fascists still remains um, to be solved uh, during the interwar period. Uh, thank you very much, Raul. So it sounds like anti-Semitism was very politically charged during the 19th century, and it's getting more and more so as... Romanians start to think that maybe foreigners and the international community is judging them because of anti-Semitism. But as you hinted at, uh, everything changes after the First World War. So the Romanian territory expanded dramatically. There's new territories with large numbers of ethnic minorities, including Jews, come into the Romanian nation state. Uh, and at the same time, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia is encouraging people to think about Jews and communism in the same breath and to talk about Judeo-Bolshevism as if it was a real thing. So how did anti-Semitism in Romania change um, in these years under these conditions? Yeah, that's a, that's indeed, there's a major transformation after the First World War. The transformation of anti-Semitism follows the major transformations occurring in the country um, overall, and I think I'll get back to that <laughs> later on, because I, I think the two are very much related. Um, as, you, as you've mentioned, both the territory of um, Romania and the population of the country double after the, the, after the First World War. Um, and with the acquisition of new provinces, Romania becomes a much more ethnically heterogeneous state. So, you know, from the 92.1% Romanians counted um, by ethnicity in 1910, you have approximately 72% after the war. So it's a, it's a much higher proportion of ethnic minorities and they are seen um, unlike the 19th century when it goes back and forth between religion and ethnicity after Versailles with the principle of nationality of national self-determination being sort of like made normative um, they are seen primarily as ethnic or national groups 
Now, there's also an issue with the ethnic minorities being mostly concentrated in the newly acquired provinces. Once again, as with Jews in 19th century Romania, they are also predominantly urban. And in the newly acquired provinces, they make up the economic, political and, and cultural elite um, of those provinces. And here I'm not just speaking about Jews, but also about Hungarians and Germans. And in fact, the Jewish minority, which used to be the most numerous before the First World War, is now only the third largest at approximately 4% of the total population, after the Hungarians, which is which are the largest minority in Indo Romania, and um, the Germans. However, um, of, the, of the Jews, in, I mean, the number increases significantly, triples from approximately 250,000 Jews before the war to approximately 750,000 after the war, which, which basically tells you that only about 30% of the total number of Jews in Greater Romania lived in the Old Kingdom, while 70% came from the new provinces, obviously meaning that in those new provinces they uh, often made up a much higher proportion of the population than in the country overall. And there's also a note that should be made about Jews in Greater Romania and Jews in Romania more generally, because the anti-Semites will speak about Jews, but when we refer to Jews, we're actually talking about very diverse communities that were themselves very different from one another. So on the one hand, you have a long-standing and small Sephardic community in Wallachia that dates back to the Spanish expulsion of the 15th century. They're located mostly in Bucharest, and they tend to be assimilated um, to Romanian language and culture. And although they're a small community, they're disproportionately powerful, so they make up, in many cases, the leadership of the Jewish organizations in the interwar period. And their, stand, their stance is very much an assimilationist stance. Contrast that to a more recent, larger Ashkenazi community in Moldova that in, to a significant extent results from this mass migration I've mentioned earlier that occurred uh, after 1829, with Jews coming from the Pale of Settlement. Um, contrast that with the newly acquired provinces after, first, after the First World War. So we have first, you know, the, the largest of these, Transylvania. The Jews of Transylvania had been emancipated since 1867, unlike their co-nationals or co-religionists in the Old Kingdom of Romania. And they were mostly assimilated to Hungarian culture. So they're seen in, along these lines as Hungarian patriots, as magyars of the Jewish faith as it's sometimes referred to in the, in the um, contemporary press, um, I mean, meaning the also Hungarian one pre-World War I. And as such, in the, the context of Hungarian claims to Romanian territory, they are perceived by the interwar Romanian state as being disloyal. Um, contrast this community again with the Jews of Bessarabia, who had been uh, exposed to discrimination and violence in the Romanov Empire, had little in that identification with the empire, unlike the, the Jews of Transylvania, and where, um, in, in the case of the Jews of Bessarabia, both Bundism uh, and mainstream socialism are very prominent, and this connects to what you were mentioning earlier about the, the perception of a Judeo-Bolshevik threat. Um, finally, if you look at the Jews of Bukovina, it's a large group, sort of like proportionally um, of all the provinces making up Greater Romania, Jews in Bukovina make up 12.86% of the population, so they are numerically much more significant than Romania overall and comparable, if you want, with, with interwar Poland in terms of um, demographics. And then once again, emancipated um, part of the Austrian territories after the, the Ausgleich of 1867, assimilated to German culture, but Bukovina is also an important center for Yiddish culture and literature. So you have 
Jews with a variety of languages, backgrounds, um, um, loyalties, uh, political stances, and this diversity is lost if you look at um, at, at how Romanians, how interwar Romanians perceive the Jews, and, and they see the Jews as a, as a compact, sort of homogenous group. There are, of course, international entanglements to be considered. Um, first of all, you have um, a situation whereby Jewish emancipation in Romania first comes with the Peace of Bucharest, uh, signed on the 7th of May 1918, which was tantamount to Romania's complete capitulation to the central powers. And therefore, there's a, there's a narrative of collaboration with the enemy, a, a Romanian version of the dog again, the, of the stab in the back myth that you have in Germany, um, where Jews, Jewish emancipation is somehow tied to this capitulation of the, the country to the central powers, to German intervention um, and pressure, which, of course, in, in, in light of later developments, is perhaps a bit ironic. Um, but, of course, there's also... An important context is that of the, of the Paris Peace Conference, where Romania, like many other successive states of the collapsed Central European empires, is made to sign a minority treaty. And that, of course, had to allow for full emancipation of the Jews. It strongly resisted. Two prime ministers chose to resign rather than sign the treaty, although Romania was getting this very favorable borders that I've, I've mentioned earlier. It was doubling its territory and population. And yet, the minority treaty was, was something that the country, like many other countries in Eastern Europe, um, found hard to accede to. Um, but this, again, brings out the question of international pressures on behalf of the Jews in Romania, and they are doubled by uh, a fear of Bolshevism. And the fear of Bolshevism has both an internal and an external dimension. There's, there's social unrest in post-war Romania. There are workers and peasant strikes, uh, partly supported from... Uh, what are then what is then the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, not quite the USSR yet. Um, but this fear of Bolshevism also has an international dimension due to the revisionist claims of the future Soviet Union on the province of Bessarabia and briefly of uh, a Soviet Republic of Hungary on the province of Transylvania. There are also Jewish refugees once again fleeing the civil war in Russia and who are mistakenly associated by the police uh, and by Romanian authorities with Bolshevik agitators purposely dispatched to destabilize um, stabilize Romania, although these are people actually fleeing the civil war in Russia and the very negative effect it, it impact it had on, on Jewish communities, whether they were exposed to the, the red armies or the white armies. Still significantly worse if they were exposed to the white armies, but as a recent book by Brendan McGeever shows it wasn't always rosy uh, when they were exposed to the activities of the, of the, the Reds either. So this is, the, I think, the different context of the, of the period after the First World War and the, the things which lead to the change. And the, the change will be immediately visible in the, in the post-war period. Simply put, in the 19th century, you see anti-Semitism more the discourse of um, you know, the rhetoric of political elites. It's, it's a parliament anti-Semitism. It translates into legislation. It's discriminatory. It excludes Jews from, from public life. But there's little violence involved. And this kind of like grassroots um, street violence against Jews becomes much more prominent after the First World War. So you've got this incredibly complex situation with all different types of Jews associated with all different types of politics. Um, you've got quite a complex situation in Russia and the Romanian anti-Semites are just simplifying all of that by saying 
more Jews are the same, more Jews are communists, let's attack them all. And ironically, the people who are most violent against Jews during the 1920s um, are the people who should have been appreciating complexity the most, the university students. What, what was it, why students in particular is it that are attacking Jews during this time? It's a great question, Roland. Thank you for that. And it's actually something that, um, I mean, it's, it's less specific than Roman, to Romania than I initially thought when I started working on this. Um, as there is, you know, anti-Semitic, um, student anti-Semitism is, is, is present in various parts of Europe at this time. But I think there are some specific Romanian conditions that feed into it. Um, and indeed, the, the reason why I thought initially this was peculiar to Romania was that news sources will emphasize international news reports on the situation in Romania will argue this is what makes Romania special. Like I said, not, not quite, but to go back to what are the structural conditions of, of the students being particularly violent, and indeed they are. Um, simply put, the, with the acquisition of the new provinces in which the pre-First World War elites were not ethnic Romanian, the Romanian state embarks on an aggressive process of nationalizing um, uh, the country and creating new elites, new Romanian elites to replace the previous imperial, now minority elites. Um, and how do you do this? Well, you, you expand the university system and indeed the, the university system, the system is hugely expanded, first of all, through acquisition of universities located in um, provinces that were outside Romania before the First World War, but become part of interwar Greater Romania. Um, like the University of, of, of Cluj or Kolochvar in, in Transylvania, for example, where, where some of the anti-Semitic uh, riots actually start. Um, so you have a context where the number of students triples from the P, uh, from, the, from the period before the First World War. So from if you look at 1912 compared to 1924, for example, you, you see a triple number of students in universities. And it's not just an increase in numbers, but it's also the social background of the students who go to universities in the post-war period. And many of them come from a rural environment. So they, um, you know, there's a land reform in 1921 that um, initially, you know, gives peasants hopes for a better future and induces many of them to send their sons to universities. And of course, in the nationalizing state is happy to welcome these, these uh, true Romanian sons of the peasants to, to universities. But this is an environment that, that many of them find to be foreign and hostile. It's a very different environment from the rural one they were coming from. Um, and they, you know, this expansion in numbers goes against the, li the limits of, of the Romanian state's capacity to absorb these students into the university system. There are few government scholarships. Um, the places in student dorms are insufficient. And for those who can't find a place in a student dorm, the rents are high. Um, the state's capacity to absorb the new graduates into the public administration is limited and it leads to high intellectual unemployment. Many of the future fascists would actually be uh, university graduates who do not find a job, who do not uh, you know, practice their profession. Um, and in all these conditions, you know, there, there are, there's increasing frustration among this new generation of Romanian students with a peasant background, and who they channel it against, whether they channel it primarily towards their Jewish colleagues. Um, once again, you have a much more urban group. Uh, even if they were as poor as the Romanian students, they could sleep uh, at, at home if they were in a city. Um, something, uh, something that you know, students coming from the rural 
uh, from a rural environment did not have it and saw it as a privilege. Um, it's a group that's very well represented in universities. It's a highly educated group, something that's true for the for 19th century Romania as well. Um, becomes extremely visible in the post-war uh, period with Jews being overrepresented in certain seats as being overrepresented in certain faculties. Um, primarily, you know, the, the liberal professions, medicine, law, but these being the most attractive, um, often the most attractive faculties for Romanians as well, with, you know, employment in public administration often blocked for Jews. The, these were uh, faculties where they were prominent already in the 19th century. So this frustration um, is basically channeled against Jews also partly because there is a pre-existing anti-Semitic legacy and because this can, you know, overlap with pre-existing anti-Semitism and can also overlap with uh, the notions of Jews being communists and being, you know, Bolshevik sympathizers. In Romania after the First World War, nationalism is an absolute consensus. Nobody's contesting Greater Romania, or very, very few people are contesting the greatness of Greater Romania. So to have anyone who is basically seen as either immune or even opposed to, to this project is, is clearly something that marks them out as enemies. And this is something that ought to be said, I think, more about Judeo-Bolshevism. I think it, it changes the perception of Jews. Although, you know, a marginal group, a one that's discriminated against and excluded from society in the 19th century, they are seen as, as, as victims, but not, the threat is not immediate. I think what you, what you have with Judeo-Bolshevism is a, is a perception of a much more immediate threat, a sort of, you know, and that translates into calls for action, it, it translates into a notion of, you know, we should strike first, um, this kind of... There's a security dilemma associated with Judeo-Bolshevism that simply wasn't present in, to the same extent in 19th century Romania or 19th century Central and Eastern Europe. This is fascinating stuff and it's kind of terrifying when you look around our world today and you see um, problems in universities and the way that politicians are, are mobilizing around sudden urgent threats that we have to panic about. Um, at the time, the political group that mobilizes some of these students is called the National Christian Defence League and they make anti-Semitism into both a violent social movement and a political party. But most people, when they talk about fascism in Romania, they're thinking of the Iron Guard or the Legion of the Archangel Michael, which is a fascist movement that breaks away from the National Christian Defence League in 1927. So we all know that not all fascist groups were anti-Semitic. Italian fascism, for example, anti-Semitism wasn't a key feature um, how important was anti-Semitism for the Legion? Well, that's the that's the core part of my book, and I argue it's absolutely central. And in in this respect, comparable, um, I wouldn't say only, but it's it's best compared to uh, the centrality of anti-Semitism in Nazi ideology, although it is based on on a different understanding, a different reading of of what what Jews are. But you're right to point out that the first anti-Semitic explicitly anti-Semitic uh, political group in Romania is the National Christian Defense League. Well, there was a, um, an earlier political formation, but short-lived and without so much influence. But the National Christian Defense League is a political group that appears as a direct reaction to Jewish emancipation. It's, it's, it's an attempt to oppose 
the you know the codification of Jewish emancipation, its inscription in the Romanian constitution. It's heavily student-based, um, although it's led by one of the anti-Semites of the old guard of 19th century Romanian um, anti-Semitism, Alexandru Sicuza. But to, to a significant extent, its backbone is the student movement. And I would add another organization, which I think is um, equally under-researched as the National Christian Defense League, but very, very important in this period as the National Union of Christian Students from Romania, uh, which is established in, in, um, in 1922 on the 10th of December, a day that then becomes sort of like um, a day that the nationalist anti-Semitic Romanian students would commemorate as, as the, the time when the anti-Jewish action started. Um, uh, the occasion of a general strike of Romanian students against the announced voting of the Constitution, which would have guaranteed Jewish emancipation, which would have made it constitutional for Jews to be um, citizens. And the National Union of Christian Students from Romania moves back and forth between the, the National Christian Defense League and the fascist movement after, the one, after that one is established a bit later in 1927. But eventually, by the 30s, it's clearly in the camp of the fascist movement. And this, I, I, I argue in, in one of my publications, that this competition for the student vote is extremely important um, in understanding why the fascist movement, which was initially a minor partner to the much better established National Christian Defense League, becomes indeed the main engine of anti-Semitism in Tower Romania. Um, so to... To go back to how um, how is it different? I mean, actually, it's it's interesting that in terms of new content, they hardly add anything that wasn't already there in late nineteenth century Romania. And there's a gray zone of the period between you know the the, the end of the nineteenth century and the First World War that needs to be researched more because we I think we we have there uh, a crystallization of a lot of the anti-Semitic tropes that are. Um, around in inter-war Romania, but that period simply hasn't been studied too well until now. But leaving that aside, um, I would say that all the content, even the most violent content, you know, when, when it comes to, to, to violence, is already there in the 19th century. What the Legion does is, on the one hand, bring all of these um, distinct strands of anti-Semitism together. They would bring together, uh, you know, anti-Semites who focused on politics and culture and uh, economics and uh, social aspects. All of these are, are combined into one comprehensive um, enemy image by the legionary movement. And the second novelty, if you will, is this call to action. It's not enough to hate the Jews. We have to do something about it. And that's, that something has to be done now and it has to be done, you know, on the streets. It's not... We, we can't expect Parliament to, to deal with this. Um, and it's important also because anti-Semitism becomes for the, for the legionary movement, for uh, the Legion of the Archangel Michael Romania's interwar fascist movement established on, in, on 24th of June 1927. It, you know, the, the, they find themselves in a, in a paradoxical situation. They are ultra-nationalist groups opposed to a nationalist state. And the, you know a state that's that has itself its own nationalizing project that's quite aggressive. So how do you solve this paradox? How can you be opposed to and opposed by your own nationalist state? And this paradox is resolved, I argue, through the introduction of an external agent. The politicians who oppose them are in the service of Jews, or are you know are either Jews themselves who are in the service of Jews, and it's, they go to remarkable lengths at identifying Jews where there are none to be found. Um, and this translates into an association of, you know, 
liberalism and democratic institutions more generally with uh, the Jews, which in turn means um, an all-out attack, not against the particular government that's in the service of Jews, but against democracy as such, because democracy, under democracy, according to the fascist movement, Jews thrive, and their thriving um, the, becomes uh, a threat to the Romanian state and to the Romanian nation. And, I mean, I, I deal with all of these in the book, but if, you are, if I was just to enumerate the various uh, accusations I found related to the Jews, they're responsible not just for Marxism, Bolshevism, democracy, liberalism, individualism, capitalism, corruption, also for, you know, poverty, alcoholism, promiscuity, social inequality, cultural backwardness, atheism, immorality, uh, humanitarianism, cosmopolitanism, militarism and pacifism, interestingly, so you have contradictions there, and even environmental degradation, so anything can be pinned to the Jews, and is, and I think it's the, it's the fact that the legionary movement creates this much more synthetic representation of an ultimate enemy that accounts for the specific radicalism and for the difference between their version of anti-Semitism and previous ones. So, it sounds like there's a lot of things legionaries don't like. Um, democracy, humanitarianism, liberalism, mm -hmm. um, money. But just to come back to this idea of Jews sort of being behind the scenes like puppet masters behind Romanian democracy, you suggested that legionaries believed that Jews had actually colonised Romania and were exploiting it from behind the scenes the way one might exploit a colony. So how does that idea shape what legionaries did? How does it shape their activism? Oh, that's, a, that's another great question, one that once again hints back to the 19th century, because this is, I think, an excellent example of both continuity with 19th century anti-Semitism and post-war radicalization. The colonization trope is not one that the Legion introduces, uh, but it's an old one, and it has to do with the demographic anxieties of Romanian state-building elites in a century of colonialism, dominated by colonialism, right? Um, which translated into both a drive to colonize, something that Konstantin Yordaki has analyzed excellently for the case of, of Dobroja, a promise that Romania acquires in 1878. But this drive to colonize is doubled by a fear of being colonized, and this has to do with, uh, you know, the... the the, the fears of Romanian state-building elites, especially with regards to, to, to Germans, but also due to Romania's, you know, <laughs> uh, geographical location as a neighbor of three empires, as a, as a tiny state tucked in between three empires, um, and uh, while also being aware of, you know, expansionist plans for both the Romanov Empire and the German eastward expansionist plans of, of German colonization. Um, in the 19th century, you see the Jews being portrayed at times as agents of empires, um, their loyalties to empires, which, as I was mentioning earlier, made perfect sense from a, from a Jewish position, um, are translated into, of course, this loyalty to Romania and um, as them acting as agents of potential colonizers. Now, against the backdrop of, backdrop of mass migration, which continues throughout the, throughout the 19th century, they eventually come to be seen as colonizers proper. So you already have people like Vasile Conta or Alexandru Cusa argue in the 19th century about the plan to colonize Romania, starting with the cities. Now, these notions are further radicalized by the legionaries in their representations of a project of settler colonialism meant to eventually replace native Romanians altogether and exterminate them. And this is that extra element of radicalization that I think is very important in accounting for the differences 
between legionary anti-Semitism and previous manifestations. In his first speech in Parliament, uh, the fascist leader, Cornelius de la Codern, talked about this plan and concluded that if it was successful, the result would be, I quote, exactly the same thing that was done to the Redskins. Sorry about that, not much political correctness would be expected from a fascist leader in the 1930s. But exactly the same thing that was done to the Redskins in America. So this is a, a project with potential genocidal implications. The Jews will exterminate Romanians if they are successful in their colonization plans. This becomes a life and death struggle, a security dilemma, generating, I argue, the preconditions for violence, so-called preemptive action, leading to genocide. And you know, Dirk Moses argues in his recent book, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security, and the Language of Transgression, that mass violence is the consequence of state aspirations to permanent security and invulnerability from threats. And if you link this to what I was saying earlier about Jews acting also as a proxy, allowing the displacement of more intractable problems, whether geopolitical with you know claims to Romanian territory in the period or social, onto a well-defined agent who in turn can be dealt with. You, you, you know, Romania is not in a position to deal with the Soviet Union. It's it's clearly in only in the position to fear the Soviet Union's designs on the province of Bessarabia. But it can deal with the Jews if the Jews are meant to stand for the Soviet Union. And this is interesting with the legionaries, how the concept of colonialism, which we tend to associate always with this you know, story of Western overseas empire, has different connotations for them. And you have, of course, an association of colonialism with the, what they call the plutocratic Western empires. But you also see the term being used for um, Soviet imperialism. Um, and this is partly related to these claims of the Soviet Union on the province of Bessarabia, but it's also a projection of the Soviet Union as having a universal plan of world domination, once again with the Soviet Union being alternatively Russian. So in, in some instances this would be, for the Romanian fascists, just a continuation of the Russian imperial agenda under a different guise. In other instances, because of Bolshevism being Judeo-Bolshevism, the Soviet Union would be Jewish. But the, the, the plan remains a, a universal plan of world domination, which is identified as a form of colonialism. There are also, there's also an internal dimension to colonialism, uh, which uh, entailed the denunciation of the exploitation of the countryside by urban elites. And these urban elites are increasingly portrayed by the legionary movement as being alienated, as being westernized or alternatively Jewified. And there's a split made between peasants being presented as the authentic representatives of the nation and the cities presented as being alien, foreign, dominated by minorities. Again, something that had some kind of um, grounding in the demographics of, of cities in Italy, Romania, but was by no means uh, having to do, it had nothing to do with, with a, an actual project of colonization, but it's translated as such, and it's once again made um, made into a threat and it's you know the, the, this imaginary peasantry that's being exploited and it is being exploited is um, increasingly presented as uh, being exploited by foreigners i.e. mostly um, Jews so eventually if you look at all these instances of what the what the legion defines as colonialism whether they're referring to Romanian cities or whether they're referring to world domination they identify the Jews as the actual agency behind all these instances. I mean, they are the ones responsible for plutocratic capitalism um, of the of the British Empire, and the ones responsible for the imperialism of the Soviet Union, and they are the ones responsible for exploiting Romanian peasants. So, legionaries—they um, don't like a lot of people. They don't like the Russians. They don't like the Jews. 
But Greater Romania has lots of other minorities as well. The Jews are not the only ones. So how did legionaries feel about Roma or Hungarians or Germans? Uh, That's a a very good question. I think it's one that also, in my view at least, it shows um, there are very important distinctions in what they think of the different minorities. And I think they're particularly relevant because they show, in my reading of it at least, that the anti-Semitism of the legionaries, and perhaps anti-Semitism more generally, was never about the Jews as such, but rather about the Romanians and the still-to-be-completed nation-building project um, that that the legionaries think they will come to fulfill. If you look at other minorities, I will will go again in the order of of size, and I was saying earlier the Hungarians are actually the largest minority in Greater Romania, and if we were to have a pyramid of enmity where the Jews are clearly at the top, Hungarians would perhaps be next, and that's due to Hungary's claims to the province of Transylvania, um, always seen as the as the most important province acquired after the First World War, and in this case you can link the legionary opposition to Hungarians to, to some grounding in the competing territorial claims of both states to Transylvania. However, and it's it's not rare that we see this, we can come across anti-Hungarian rhetoric that once again leads back to anti-Semitism, or it's backed up by anti-Semitism. And I'm having in mind an article written by. Uh, Jon Mozart, the, the second in command of the Legion, Codranus faithful lieutenant, who is responding to an article of, written by Lord Rothermere in the Daily Mail called Hungary's Place in the Sun. And Mozart's view is that Hungarian irredentism is actually supported by an international Jewish cabal with representatives everywhere. And of course, of course, uh, Lord Rothermere himself, despite being a supporter of both Italian fascism and German Nazism, and of as well as of Oswald Mosley's black shirts, he's dabbed a Jew by the Romanian fascists in, in his response to that article. So. If Hungarians have plans to Transylvania, they're less dangerous than the fact that these plans are backed up once again by Jews, in, according to, to um, uh, the legendary imagination. When it comes to Germans, the relationship is more ambiguous, especially after Hitler comes to power. Because on the one hand, there is a desire to have good relations with Nazi Germany, seen as a potential powerful ally. Uh, but on the other hand, the suspicion of the Nazi organizations among the German minority in Romania and the question about their primary loyalty, which, according to legionaries, should be primarily to Romania and not to Germany or not to the Führer. So Germans are fine as long as they are loyal. The the most interesting, perhaps for me at least, is um, the case of the Roma, because many people assume somehow that because Roma and Jews end up both being victims of genocide, uh, during the Second World War, that Roma were as discriminated as the Jews. Um, uh, there was as much racism against the Roma in Italy, Romania um, as it was as there was anti-Semitism. But actually, contrary to what one would expect, despite the history of slavery, despite the fact that they are still clearly a marginalized group in Italy, Romania, there's very little by way of hate rhetoric. There's very little by way of explicit racism, even from the fascist movement. And this has to do, I think, with the perception of Roma as a potentially loyal group that's recoverable for the nation, a nation which badly needed friendly minorities in the post-war setting. Um, And the situation can be seen as similar, perhaps, to that of the Jews in in the Hungarian part of the Habsburg Empire after 1867. While there was no love lost on the Roma, they were seen as as a potentially useful ally that could turn the demographic balance in the favor of Romanians. So in interwar Romania, Roma are mostly seen as a social category, as, as you know, um, 
because people in need of attention from the state to improve their material conditions and make them into Romanians. There is, of course, some biological racism, but I think that's a fringe phenomenon in interwar Romania, with the eugenicists for the most part confined to an academic audience and with very little bearing on politics. They are there, they have an anti-Roma racist discourse. How much does it matter politically? I think very little. Even um, when you would think their time has come under Antonescu's regime in the Second World War, these people do not get access to the corridors of power. Um, the Romanian fascists, in turn, emphasize spirituality and they reject biological racism as being anti-Christian, something which leads occasionally to strange relations with Nazi Germany, which in turn ends up referring more pliable radical right actors like the National Christian Defense League or the National Christian Party later on. For their part, when the Romanian Roma organized, establishing the first ever Roma organization in the world, the, the Union of Native Roma, interestingly, the name, name is directly copied from the Jewish party of the same name in Interwar Romania, they were trying to be on good terms with all Romanian factions, which in 1930s Romania means varieties of the right, since the left is virtually inexistent. And they approached the leader of the Romanian fascists to be their honorary president, and that's an honor which he accepts. Um, so the relationship of the Legion with the Roma is very, very different from the one um, towards the Jews. And in my research, I've actually come across the, the, the first explicitly racist anti-Roma article I came across is one by Constantin Papanace published in December 1940. So this is at the time when Romania has come to power. Uh, when, sorry, when, when the fascists have come to power, when Romania has joined the Axis in November 1940, and when it's, adopt, when it's sort of like adapting its legislation to align itself to Nazi Germany and adopting racial legislation starts to see the Roma as a clearly distinct race. But this is late in time, and this is not during the interwar period. Um, and once again, this famous article, which all many Romanians have, Romanians have picked on it, talks once again. Uh, the, the title is "Dejudaization, Defanatization, Degypsy." I mean, it's not even translatable into into English properly, but it's associating um, anti-Roma racism with anti-Semitism, which is first, again, in the order of terms, and second with the Fanariots, the, the sort of like 18th century regime of foreign rulers imposed by the Ottoman Empire, who were, if you want, the original foreigners for Romanian state-building elites, the original bad influence that had to be combated um, for Romanian nation-building. Um, so when the Roma do appear as a, as a group to be targeted, um, they are second, certainly secondary to Jews. And here, one last thing I would mention is Looking at the membership, I've managed to identify, you know, there are few, obviously there are not many, but you can find a few Hungarian legionaries, you can find a few German legionaries, you can find a few Ukrainian legionaries or Russian legionaries. I even found a Tatar legionary. Um, and you also find Jews. And that's the interesting bit. You find converted Jews within the movement. So that's why I'm arguing that the, the, the definition of a Jew for the Romanian fascist is very different from the Nazi one. It's not a biological racist one, and converted Jews lose their Jewishness in the process. They are Christians, um, and they can, as such, be accepted into a movement which is otherwise as radically anti-Semitic as the, as the Nazi party, but on different grounds. So, yeah, the attitude towards minorities is very different, and the, I guess that the main point there is how loyal are they seen to be to the Romanian state. So, anti-Semitism 
has different varieties as well. Um, at the beginning of the talk, you mentioned that what got you interested in this topic was Hannah Arendt's comment that Romania is the most anti-Semitic country in, in interwar Europe. And this was in a book on the Holocaust. So the Holocaust in Romania is quite different to the Holocaust in um, Germany because Romanians are the, the major perpetrators and it's a Romanian army doing it. Um, how did the long history of anti-Semitism in Romania shape the Holocaust? Yeah, um, yeah. like I said, that was my starting point. <laughs> and whenever I talk about the Holocaust in Romania, which I've, I've done recently in a couple of lectures, I also designed and taught a course on the Holocaust in Romania at the University of Leicester. And I did the same thing there that I did here. I started with the you know, story of 19th century Romanian states, or at least state-sponsored, at the very least, um, anti-Semitism. Because I think without this background, many things cannot be explained. And you're absolutely right that the evolution, the patterns of the Romanian Holocaust are very different. I don't like to say actually the, Holocaust, the Romanian Holocaust, but the Holocaust in Romania. But it's, it's a very different pattern than the one carried out by Nazi Germany. So you, and you have things which appear as paradoxes. How can Romania be the second perpetrator state after Nazi Germany in terms of numbers of number of victims, and at the same time the second East European country in terms of the, the, the percentage of Jews who survived the Holocaust in the country? How do we make sense of Antonescu's order to you know, deport the Jews of Bukovina and Bessarabia to be absolutely ruthless, as he says, and use machine guns if we must? Of his famous statement, I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians. How do we account for that and his refusal to deport the Jews of the Old Kingdom of Romania and of Southern Transylvania to Nazi death camps despite German pressures? And I think the only way to unpack these apparent paradoxes is by looking at the long history of anti-Semitism in Romania and the fact it's inextricable inextricably linked to nation-building processes. And the distinctions made between Jews in different territories point to this very different pattern from the Nazi one. We don't see here a project of completely eliminating Jews from Romania, a project that I think, if the legionary movement was still in power, might have been um, implemented, but I'm not dabbling into counterfactual history. They were no longer in power from January 1941. So, um, but what we see is a much more differentiated geography of deportation and mass murder. And this differentiated geography has to do more with the Romanian state than with the Jewish communities. Um, we also see an, you know, a reaction against foreign pressure and foreign intervention, which can run all the way from the Congress of Berlin and before, through to Antonescu's refusal to bow to German demands in 1943-1944, once again to an insistence on, on Romania's independence, on its agency, an exclusive prerogative to make decisions on matters considered to be internal affairs, such as the treatment of the Jews, was insistently presented from the 19th century all the way to the Second World War. In the words of a survivor, I quote, we were their Jews. If anyone was going to kill us, it would be them. Um, and there is... A lot more to be said about this, as I think it reveals specific anxieties of elites in peripheral countries. The account, it, it accounts for the specific positionality of such elites operating in an international context where power asymmetries significantly limited the scope for action, for exercising agency. Um, and this, you know, has to do a lot with anti-Semitism, but I think it can be taken even one step further given the purpose of this, of this uh, podcast series. In a way, we can draw an analogy between the positions of minorities within states um, operating under similar constraints and subject to power asymmetries vis-a-vis -vis the majority and of 
the so-called minority states, as those that signed the minority treaties came to be called at the Paris Peace Conference in the international arena. So in a way, minorities within, uh, or, you know, states that feel like second-hand members of the, second-rate members of the international community uh, come to treat the minorities um, similarly within their own borders. Um, and to emphasize the exercise of, this, of the sovereignty internally even more. And if we are to apply this to the understanding of the Holocaust in Romania, I think it becomes clear that it needs to be read, if not exclusively, then at least as primarily a Romanian affair and overwhelmingly so. And this is extremely important also politically for the contemporary Romanian state, because, you know, uh, Romanian patriots would prefer the convenient story of the rescue of the Jews, although, you know, not deporting and not killing is not exactly rescue. But there's, there's a tendency to focus on this, on on the second part of the Holocaust in Romania of Antonescu's refusal to deport the Jews to Nazi death camps, Romania as um, uh, a wartime route of emigration to Palestine, which indeed happens after the, after uh, autumn 1942, um, as a as a place to which Jews to which Jews escaped deportations from Northern Transylvania in 1944. So emphasizing the fact that. The Romanian authorities were responsible for the mass murder, for the deportation of Jews and Roma, and the Holocaust is extremely important in a context that sees present-day apologists of both Antonescu and the legionary movement um, still visible in the Romanian public space. You see, you, we still have memory wars over controversial characters associated either with Antonescu's wartime regime or with the interwar fascist movement. And there is here a huge discrepancy, I would say, between the official state acceptance of the Romanian responsibility for the Holocaust in the territories the Romanian state controlled. This has happened since the final report of an international commission of the Holocaust in Romania in 2004. So the state has accepted its responsibility, but this is widely divergent from, I would say, the bulk of public opinion. And in trying to account for it, again, I'm, I'm trying to stay steer clear of this other... I would say, uh, extremist position, which is, uh, Romanians are just bad. They're just bad people. They're just anti-Semites. I, I think there's a much more recent memory of violence and repression under the socialist regime, which is closer to home, both temporally, but also geographically, because with few exceptions, you have the, the pogroms in Donhoi, Galatz, Bucharest, and Yash, but except for those, most of the mass murder of Jews, the, the, the bulk of the killing took place in territories that are either no longer part of Romania, like the interwar province of Bessarabia, now the Republic of Moldova, or never were part of Romania, either before or after the Second World War, like Transnistria, which is the place where most Jews were deported and most Jews were killed, um, and Roma during the, the, the Second World War. So, you know, Romanians had not seen this. It's not part of the collective memory of, of, of Romanians to the extent that the crimes or the abuses of the, of the socialist regime were. And given also the mass migration of Jews from Romania, both during communism, when the Romanian states traded them to Israel, um, but also after the collapse of socialism, means that very few of the people who themselves experienced or had family members who experienced deportation to Transnistria are still in the country. So you, 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 you lack the witnesses um, of uh, the Holocaust in Romania to the extent to which you, you have instead plenty of witnesses of uh, what is you know referred to as the repression under the socialist regime and here 
the two engage in, in some kind of competitive martyrdom, where, unfortunately, the specter of Judeo-Bolshevism is still present, and whereby Romanian nationalists who denounce the crimes of communism as being as bad as or even worse than uh, the Holocaust, insisting in linking the communist regime to Jews, and, uh, uh, you know, once again, something that's not just specific to Romania, you, you have this discourse quite prominently in Poland as well, and it's a discourse that in general, it's, uh, is, is present in Central Europe these days. Um, and like you said, I think the lessons we can learn, we can draw from these are also valid in uh, other settings than East European ones. You, your association there with you know, university students these days and alleged threats of migrant and refugee groups um, and the alleged threat they pose to Western civilization is a feature you can encounter in Western European countries as well. Um, and it's, it's again, made salient by this projection of, of a possible threat. And I don't think it's the only silver bullet solved to solve this, but I, I think there's, a, there's badly a need for more education on this. And more education that connects academic research to uh, the public sphere. I, I, I hope podcast series like this one can help with that. I was recently involved in a project training high school teachers in teaching them the more unpleasant aspects of Romania's history, from Roma slavery to the Holocaust in Romania. And I think we need more of that. We need more education at, at you know pre-university level on issues such as the Holocaust, on issues such as anti-Semitism, so that you know kids like me don't have to end up in college reading Hannah Arendt to find out about Romanian anti-Semitism while having studied for you know 12 years in uh, in Romania previously. Um, yeah, this is simultaneously fascinating and terrifying. I'm very much looking forward to reading your forthcoming book, Enemies of the Resurrection. Uh, but in the meantime, if people don't want to go and get a PhD in, in order to, to get their head around this, where can they go to learn more about um, the history of Romanian anti-Semitism and fascism? Well, there, um, there is... I think when I started working on this in the, in the 1990s, there was, the literature was quite limited. But now there's quite a lot of, of recent literature, your book included, Holy Legionary Youth, um, dealing with, with fascist activism in interwar Romania. I think um, the best English language monograph on the topic, if you ask me. Um, there's great work on the Holocaust from uh, you know the, the books of Denis Deletant and Vladimir Solonari, those of Jean Ancel. Uh, or uh, Armin Heinlein in German, well, Jean Ancel, Deretant and Solonari in English, Armin Heinlein in German. Um, the quite recent book of Diana Dumitru is, when it comes to the Holocaust in Romania, perhaps my favorite because it adopts a comparative perspective that looks at long-term state policies on the two sides of the Nister and looks at how these affected the attitude of the local population towards the Jews in the course of the Holocaust and how people in territories that had been part of Greater Romania during the interwar period were much more prone to attack Jews and to engage in violence than were people in territories that had been part of the Soviet Union and had been exposed to at least formally this anti-anti-Semitic campaign um, in, uh, in the Soviet Union during the interwar period. Of course, my own publications, uh, most of which are accessible open are available open access but if they're not you can always uh, contact me and if you if you're looking for something in particular I have written on on I think all of these uh, so in anticipation of my book uh, you can have a look at 
my uh, journal articles and book chapters on these topics. Fantastic. Dr. Raul Kostaccia, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Roland, for the excellent questions.